everyone. Welcome back. This is episode four for 2023. We pick up in Psalm 12. The godly are fast disappearing. We know the Lord will protect the oppressed. And then moving on to Matthew 14, 22 through 36. They, the disciples and Jesus, crossed to the other side of the lake. Then Jesus went to pray alone. We all need our alone prayer time. The disciples were still on the boat, and a strong wind tossed them. Jesus came walking on the water, saying, quote, Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. End quote. Peter didn't believe at first and said, If it's really you, let me walk on the water to you. And Jesus said, Yes, come. So Peter began to walk on the water, but the waves overcame him and caused him to fear, and he lost his faith and began to sink. Jesus saved him, admonishing him for his lack of faith. I wonder if this was a test for Peter. The disciples proclaimed, quote, you really are the son of God. They landed at Genesaret, I think I have that right, and Jesus healed many. Matthew then 15, 1 through 9, the Pharisees questioned Jesus. This is a recurring theme as Jesus does more stuff, the Pharisees question him more, and the Sadducees. Uh, why do your disciples not do the ceremonial hand-washing before they eat? Jesus points out that the Pharisees' traditions, quote, violate the direct commandments of God. Jesus also points out as an example of how the tradition of giving to God what they would have given to their parents violates, quote, honor your father and your mother. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites. We then flip over to Genesis 41, where Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Wherever Joseph went, people were commanded to kneel down. He is assimilated into the Egyptian ruling culture and is given an Egyptian name, Zaphnath-Paneh. I don't think he's referred to this anymore. It's just that one time. Maybe that's just to emphasize how much he was assimilated into Egyptian culture. Pharaoh also gives Joseph a wife. This when Joseph was 30 years old. <clears throat> As predicted, seven years of bumper crops followed, and Joseph stored much grain, too much to measure. Joseph and his wife had two sons. Then seven years of famine followed, as Joseph predicted. When the famine hit Egypt, Joseph opened up the grain storehouse. People from outside of Egypt came to buy grain, obviously. That's the only place they could get food. Genesis 42, Joseph's brothers heard of this and went to Egypt to buy grain. But, Jason, uh, but uh, Jacob sent his sons, but wouldn't send Benjamin, his youngest. Joseph instantly recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. When Joseph, you think, also, in addition to being assimilated, I think the Egyptians wore makeup and all of that as well. And, and of course, why would they think that this would be their brother that they thought was dead? Joseph opted to act harsh to his brothers and recalled the dreams that he had as a youth and accused them of being spies. But I think Joseph is just testing them here. He tells them he will never leave Egypt that they will never leave Egypt unless the youngest comes, the brother that Joseph told Joseph there was one more. But of course, Joseph knew this. Joseph put them in prison for three days, then released all but one, saying the last will be released when the youngest brother comes. And that's Simeon that's in jail. I wonder what the Joseph's brothers thought about his request. How could it 
proved they were not spies. But they likely desperately needed the grains, so were probably very agreeable regardless. They think all of this is punishment for what they did to Joseph years ago. And when Joseph sent them away, he also instructed the payments to be secretly returned to the brothers. So instructing his servants, say, put the payments in there. Just kind of hide them in the saddlebags or something like that. He obviously didn't want the payment. This is probably also trusting or testing their trust as well, too. So... The brothers discovered the money and their stuff on the way home and panicked because they're thinking, oh, now Egypt might think that they were trying to cheat him. But they ended up going home and Jacob refused to send Benjamin, even though Simeon was in jail. Then for the reading of January 22nd, we flip back over to Psalm 13. David laments that the Lord has forgotten him, yet he will continue to trust in the Lord's unfailing love. Matthew 15 10 through 39, one of my favorite Jesus statements, quote, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. This offended the Pharisees. Jesus said they are the blind leading the blind. The words you speak come from their hearts. From the heart comes evil thoughts, which defiles you. Then they travel north to Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman asks for Jesus to help her demon-possessed daughter. Jesus first says he's only come to help the Jews, people of Israel. But she showed great faith and he healed her daughter. I think this is a foreshadowing of, of introducing Jesus to the Gentiles through Paul. Then Jesus went back to the Sea of Galilee. A crowd gathered, bringing people to be healed, and Jesus healed them all. Then Jesus fed them with seven loaves and a few small fish. There were seven large baskets of leftover food. Again, the reloads. <laughs> 4,000 men plus women and children were fed that day. Going to Genesis 43, the grain ran out um, in Jacob's family again. So Jacob again sent the brothers back to Egypt. And he relented and sent Benjamin this time. Judah personally guaranteed Benjamin's safety. Jacob instructs them to bring gifts, with take gifts with them, plus double the money to make up for what was likely a mistake. Remember, Joseph had instructed his servant to put the money back in the saddlebags or in their bag somewhere. Now, Simeon has been in jail all this time. I'm thinking this is probably another year or two. I feel bad for Simeon. Jacob ordered a big feast when the brothers arrived. The brothers fear, though, that Jacob's going to make them, that Joseph's rather going to make them slaves and return the original money. But the household manager said, no, 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 we have received your payment already and don't need this. And then they released Simeon. Joseph asked about Jacob, then wept in private after seeing Benjamin. The Egyptians did not eat with the brothers because they despised Hebrews. Joseph instructed his manager to put his personal silver cup in their stuff. This is a reason to catch up with them, I think, and discover the cup to bring them back. I assume, again, this is to check their honesty and to tell them the truth of his identity. Inadvertently, the manager says Joseph uses the cup 
or incidentally, I should say, to use the cup to, quote, predict the future. I don't know if this is an embellishment. I think Joseph says that a little bit later as well, too. But how does he use the cup to predict the future, or is it more just sort of like a symbol? The cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and Benjamin would become Joseph's slave now. Judah speaks up for his brothers, saying they did exactly what Joseph asked. Benjamin was Joseph's only full brother, which is why Jacob was so protective. Judah says that if they don't bring Benjamin back, Jacob will die of anguish. Reading for tw uh, January 23rd starts with Psalm 14. Only fools say there is no God. The wise seek God. Matthew 16, now the Pharisees and the Sadducees decide to test Jesus to prove his authority, or lack thereof, they're probably thinking. The only sign, he says, though, that he's going to give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the whale for, 30, for three days, so shall Jesus be in the earth, is the reference here again, I believe. He then warns the disciples to avoid the false teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the yeast analogy. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. When pressed for what they think, Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter he is blessed because nobody told him that, but rather God revealed it to him. And he says that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Now, he warned the Messiahs, don't to tell anybody that he is the Messiah. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm left to wonder why, why Jesus is saying, don't tell people about me. Maybe it has something to do with, let the people see who I am and come to their own conclusion. I don't know. Genesis 45, Joseph tells his brothers who he is. He says not to be upset that this has been God's plan, as if Joseph had not been in Egypt. Egypt would not have suffered, would have not only have suffered this, the famine like the other nations, but would not be able to help them with the grain sales. There were still five years left in the famine, Joseph told him. He tells his brothers to get Jacob, and then they can all live in the region of Goshen, I'm assuming this is in Egypt, and be cared for. Pharaoh then also invites Jacob to Egypt. The brothers tell Jacob that Joseph is alive. So that would have happened before if Joseph is asking for Jacob to come down. And Jacob says that, and well, I'm sorry, I got that in reverse. The brothers tell Jacob that Joseph is alive and course, that's a big shock. And Jacob says that he has to go see Joseph before he dies. Jacob's getting old. Jacob travels to Egypt. Along the way, he has a vision from God not to be afraid, as God will make his family a great nation. Jacob and all descendants, including grandchildren. A genealogy follows. A total of 66, not counting Jacob's sons, wives, and Joseph's two sons, total of 70 after that, settled Jacob's family in Goshen. Joseph and Jacob experience an emotional reunion, as you can only imagine. Jacob thought that his son was dead. Joseph tells Pharaoh that his family has arrived. Pharaoh tells Joseph to give his family the best land in Egypt. And if they have special skills, they can also be in charge of Pharaoh's livestock as well. Jacob and Pharaoh meet, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. 
I think that there's more significance to that statement than just that statement. The act of uh, Hebrew blessing an Egyptian. I'd have to dig into that further, though. Uh, Jacob's 130 at this time. Proverbs 3, 1 through 10, never forget what the Lord has taught you. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not be impressed with your wisdom. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And then we return to Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples what must happen, that he will go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of, quote, the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, end quote. He would be killed, but would rise from the dead on the third day. Peter didn't like that. But Jesus rebuked Peter, saying that Peter's words were Satan's words, and to get out, seeing it from a human point of view and not God's. He tells his disciples, you must take up your cross and follow him. Give up your life for his sake to save it. And that the Son of Man will judge all people according to their deeds. Six days later, the transfiguration takes place. So this is Peter, James, and John, the brothers, James and John, not the other James. And certainly not Jesus' brothers, James, because Jesus' brother, James, doesn't really become involved, I think, in Jesus' ministry until after the death and the resurrection, I think. Anyway, so the three of them saw Jesus' face shine like the sun and his clothes become white as light. And then Moses and Elijah appeared on either side of Jesus, I think it is, and then began talking with Jesus. Just think about that for a second. You're walking up, Jesus is ahead of you, and you see Jesus up there, and then suddenly he starts to glow, and then Moses and Elijah appear, and they and they just start chatting, like they're like hanging out at Starbucks or something. I mean, wow, <laughs> that's pretty intense right there. A voice from the cloud said, quote, this is my dearly loved son, which bring, who brings me much joy. Listen to him. That's similar to the voice when Jesus is baptized. But this scared the disciples. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Jesus is saying a lot of times, it seems like, don't be afraid. Now, Moses and Elijah weren't there anymore. And presumably, Jesus had resumed his normal appearance at this point. Now, Jesus says that Elijah has already come again, that that was John the Baptist. He doesn't explicitly say that was John the Baptist, but the disciples figure that out. So the disciples are getting smarter. John suffered, so shall Jesus. We then flip back to Genesis 47. The famine becomes so severe that the nation's food was used up, all the nations around. When people couldn't pay any more, Joseph accepted livestock as payment for grain. The next year, the same issue happened, and all the people had was land. And they sold that to Pharaoh for grain, and the people became slaves. But this doesn't mention Joseph's family. I'm wondering or forgetting how the Hebrews became slaves. Because remember, once we get to the Exodus, the Hebrews have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Now, Jacob had lived 147 years and made Joseph swear he'd take his body to be buried in his ancestor's tomb after he died. Jacob claimed that Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh, I'm not pronouncing that right, but that's okay, as his own. Here's, Here's why there isn't a tribe of Joseph, but rather the split tribe, I think. 
Maybe that's not the right way to say it, but I think that's the case. Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, and Jacob reserved the higher blessing for Ephraim, Ephraim the secondborn. Psalm 15, followers of the Lord will stand firm forever. That's what I got from that psalm. Then over to Matthew 17, we're still in Matthew 17, starting at verse 14. The disciples could not heal a boy with seizures because they didn't have great faith. Jesus is not happy with that, it seems like, and says, A faith as small as a mustard seed can move a mountain. Now, I never saw this as a literal test because it would be just that. If you think about this, if you wanted to move a mountain it would be your wishes and not God's. And therefore, you don't have sufficient faith because you're putting your wants ahead of God's. However, if you believe that the mountain will move if it is God's will, then your faith is strong. Quote, nothing would be impossible, end quote. Jesus then tells them again in Galilee that he will be killed by his enemies but will be raised on the third day. Then they went to Capernaum. They are challenged to pay the temple tax. They being just seems like Peter and Jesus. I think they're the only two here at this time. Jesus asked Peter if the king's tax, their own people or people they have conquered. And Peter responds to the latter, those who they have conquered. Jesus, having made the point that citizens of the kingdom are free, tells Peter, we do not wish to offend. And since it is implied that the disciples may not have had the funds to pay for the tax, Jesus instructs Peter, remember, he's the fisherman, to go get a pole, a rod, and line. First fish he catches, open the mouth, and there'll be a large silver coin that will take care of the tax for Peter and for Jesus. So the lesson here of doing God's work, God will always provide. And then Matthew 18, the disciples asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus responds, it is the children. And I think that this is because the children are innocent, not corrupted by sin. As Jesus goes on to describe the punishment for those who will cause the little ones to sin, and then expands on that to include, quote, what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So not even causing them to sin, but just to tempt them. Back to Genesis 49, Jacob gives his last words to his sons. Reuben, the firstborn, apparently slept with Jacob's wife and will be first no longer. That has powerful implications, taking away the birthright and the blessing. Reuben sounds like a bad person here, but remember, it was he who wanted to save Joseph. So perhaps maybe he'd become a person of repentance, or maybe the sleeping came after Joseph, uh, Reuben's plan to rescue Joseph from the cistern. He then curses Simeon and Levi in for their anger, in their anger, they murdered men and crippled oxen just for sport. That sounds pretty evil. He praises Judah, though, quote, all your relatives will bow before you, end quote. Next, Zebulun will be, quote, a harbor for ships. That's, that's all after a lengthy passage for Judah, not much for Zebulun. For Issachar, a sturdy donkey will submit himself to hard work. Dan will effectively govern because he trusts in the Lord. This is what Jacob is saying to his sons. God will fend off an attack. Gad, rather, will fend off an attack. Asher will produce rich food for kings. Naphtali will have beautiful offspring. 
then Joseph, a long statement here, the fall of a wild donkey who remained steadfast in the face of adversity. Jacob then blesses Joseph. It seems like that he transferred Reuben's birthright and blessing to Joseph, perhaps. And Benjamin will be a clan of warriors. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob again reiterated his wish to be buried with his ancestors, and then he died. Now in Genesis 50, Joseph mourned. They took the body back after the embalming period of 40 days and a mourning of 70 days. I assume that's after, for a total of 110 days. All of Pharaoh's officials and other dignitaries came with the family on the journey. A seven-day period of mourning followed after they arrived. Joseph's brothers, fearful again of Joseph again for what they had done to him now that Jacob had died and was buried, asked for forgiveness. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. It's a lot of don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because God intended for this to happen. God intended that what happened to him for all for good and reassured that he would continue to take care of his family. Now, Joseph died at 110. It was placed in a coffin in Egypt, though his final wishes were to have the people take his bones back to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they eventually returned. January 26, Palm 16, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. And then continuing in Matthew 18, a shepherd will leave the 99 other sheep, if in a flock of a hundred, to find the one that is lost and will rejoice in finding it. You've ever heard the song about the 99? I remember we sang it in choir, and it took me a moment to look up the biblical reference for it, and this is where it's at. So you rejoice in bringing back the one that was lost more than the ones that never strayed. Jesus then discusses what to do if one sins against you in an effort to bring them back to their faith, culminating in a decision of the church, the body of believers, not like a building or a religion. If they won't accept the church's decision, it sounds like they are lost. There's only so much we can do to bring believers back or former believers. Quote, for where two or three gather as my followers, I am there among them. Our faith wants us to be together, wants us to share, wants us to commiserate, wants us to have that fellowship. Peter then asks the question, how often should I forgive someone? I mean, when is enough enough? And Jesus basically says 70 times 7, which back then I think was in, was meaning there is no end to it. You just, Peter asks, should I do seven times? Is that good enough? And 70 times 7, Jesus replies, I think is saying basically you have to always forgive. Because if, how can we expect God to forgive us? Now, here's something that's interesting with these readings, and I didn't realize this when I first chose it, but apparently this might be more, at least with Old Testament, a chronological reading, because we shift now to Job, which kind of made me a little bit happy. I'm like, okay, well, this is cool. I, I like the story of Job, although it can be a little bit of a tough read sometimes. So we start in Job 1. We know Job is a righteous man. He's blameless, and he has complete integrity. The Lord asks Satan, um, who Satan comes uninvited to the heavenly court. 
not sure how he manages that, but that sets up the discussion between the Lord and Satan. The Lord says, hey, have you noticed my servant Job, who is just righteous, great, and perfect? And Satan's like, yeah, well, you know, that's because you've basically given him everything. You take away all of his comforts and riches and this and that, and he's going he's gonna to curse you. Well, God says, okay, go ahead, test him. And Satan does just that. But Job still praises the name of the Lord and did not sin by blaming God. So Satan again crashes the heavenly court and said, you know, if you take away God, if you take away Job's health, Job will curse God. So God allowed Satan to do just that. Job's wife encourages Job to curse God, but Job held to his integrity. When three of his friends heard of all of this, Job's health issues now, because Job's having a lot of problems, they come to advise him, comfort him, console him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They sat with Job for a week in complete silence because they saw Job's suffering was so great. It was too great for words. But then finally Job spoke, cursing the day he was born, for if he was not born, he would now be at rest. In death, the wicked cause no trouble, and the slave is free from his master. We go over to Psalm 17, 1 through 5 here. Hear my plea for justice, Lord, declare me innocent. Doesn't this dovetail very nicely with what we're reading in Job right now? I like that. That's cool. Matthew 19, 1 through 15, large crowds fill, follow Jesus to Judea, east of the Jordan River, so he could heal their sick. The Pharisees, always trying to test him and trick him up, asked him if a man can divorce a woman for any reason. Jesus quotes Genesis and says, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Well, continuing the test, the Pharisees quote Mosaic law, saying that it was permissible. But Jesus says, this is not what God intended. I think, again, this is all getting back to the, the heart of the person, and God never intended it to be easy to divorce someone. They, I think maybe a word to describe it is weaponized divorce in that culture. Continuing the test, the Pharisees quote Mosaic Law. Well, I already said that. I'm sorry. Uh, moving on, parents brought children for blessing. The disciples tried to stop them. You know, don't, don't bother Jesus. He's got better things to do. But Jesus said, no, no, no. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he blessed the children. And then we return to Job, Job 4. Finally, one of the three spoke. Eliphaz responded to Job saying that in the past you encouraged those struggling, but now... When you're struggling, you lose your heart. Doesn't your reverence for God give you hope? And Eliphaz continues saying, quote, If I were you, I would go to God and present my case. God does great things too marvelous to understand. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord when you sin. Job 6, Job responds to Eliphaz saying, Hey, his misery would outweigh all the sands of the sea if it was put on a scale. And he says, don't I have a right to complain? Job wishes God would crush him. Still, he has not denied the words of the Holy One. But then Job says Eliphaz should be kind to him and not accuse him of fearing God. He says his friends have given him no help. And to show him, please tell me what I've done wrong. He thinks he hasn't done anything wrong. 
Quote, oh God, remember that my life is but a breath and I will never again feel happiness. He has lost hope. Even sheep, even sleep rather, gives no easing of his misery. He wants to be alone in his last remaining days. And that's it for this week. If um, anything else, I can't think of anything else right now. I hope that you have a great week and we will see you again (laughs) next Monday. Take care and God bless. Thank you.